Welcome to Season 1, Episode 1 of Storyborn. Where does one begin a story? Where and when is a story born? We all know that stories have beginnings, middles, and ends, but what about the tapestry of all story, where all stories meet and connect and weave together? How does one begin to tell that story? I've chosen to start with the threads closest to home, so I begin season one of Storyborn in my hometown of Manson, Iowa. Welcome to the birth of this story. Welcome to Storyborn. Let's begin. I am a poem and you are a song Written on pages but forgotten in time I am the hospital you gave us a wonderful short history of Manson and started to blend it with some of your own stories of growing up here. I noted in that history a couple of things, um, including the fire um, that initially destroyed the town, and then, of course, the tornado. And those certainly seem to stand out to me as defining moments in the story of this place. Um, like you said, they, they shaped the lives of those who chose to rebuild, and they shaped the lives of those who chose to move away, um, and just really shaped the geography of the community and the physical place. Like you said, there are scars across the landscape from the tornado that you still see today. So those certainly seem to me to be defining moments in the town's story. And I'm wondering if there are any other moments that occur to you as just like Definitively, if you took a snapshot of a moment in time, when you think about the story of Manson and, and especially what it means to you personally, if you were to frame a certain story as the defining story of Manson, what might, or the defining moment in a story, um, what, what might that be? Well, I think for everyone who grew up in Manson, that defining moment took place at, at a different time. Um, and, and for different reasons. But I think one of the defining moments for me was the day that I broke into Bob Hendricks's garage. <laughs> so um, I had, I've had this lifelong affinity for antique cars. And uh, my house that I grew up in is right next to the Illinois Central Railroad track. And so my parents... Uh, when I was growing up, were always adamant, don't play on the railroad track. You could be killed. You know, if you get too close, a train could come by and suck you up under the wheels. <clears throat> so, of course, we played on the railroad track every opportunity that, that we had. Uh, it, it was our playground. <laughs> we would build forts and all kinds of things in the ditch between our property and, and the tracks itself. And then when the trains would rush by, we would slowly crawl on our bellies up the embankment toward the rails and see how close we could get before we felt the suction that was supposed to pull us up under the wheels. <laughs> so my parents never knew that, <laughs> but it's just a part of, you know, that's, that was our experience. But anyway, um, school for me was in the middle of town and we lived on the far outskirts and I could walk down the sidewalk and, and get there in the roundabout way that we were supposed to, or I could become the world's champion rail walker and balance all the way from my house to um, Main Street. Um, so of course that's what I would do. And one day when I was coming home, I noticed that there was this tumble down um, shack in in a, a, an unkempt property that was grown up with, with scrub trees and bushes and there were antique cars littered around the property. Now, I had checked, this was in eighth grade, and in the junior high school library, there was a book called Automobiles of Yesteryear. And it was illustrated with hand-drawn illustrations of various types of automobiles and a description of each one. I checked the book out every two weeks for my entire eighth grade uh, time I was in school. And at the end of, of eighth grade, the librarian gave me the book, <laughs> so I still have it. Um, but 
but I had such a, I had this, this passion for antique cars. So I wanted to explore um, the antique cars that were on this property. So as, a, as I recall them, there was a, a 1939 Lincoln Zephyr. There was a 1942 Continental. There was a 1937 Ford. There was a 1923 Essex coach. Just wonderful things deteriorating around the garage. Keep in mind, this is a half a block off Main Street. It'd been there for decades. I never saw it before because I never paid attention. But going down the railroad tracks where it wasn't supposed to be, you could see it very clearly. Um, so if there was all this wonderful machinery on the outside of the shed, what possibly lurked on the inside of the shed? I had to know. So the windows were covered with tin signs. And so I very carefully pulled away some of the tin from the bottom of one of the windows and slid through. There was no light inside the building because all the windows were covered. Um, there was just a sliver of sunlight that, that shone through the area where I had peeled the tin away. And through that dusty shaft of sun, illuminated the grill of a 1928 Hutmobile. So if you're not familiar with a Hutmobile, similar to a Model A Ford, but twice as heavy and, and half again as long. So I looked inside the car and it had beautiful maroon mohair interior, had crystal bud vases in the back seat on the sides of the windows, had window shades on, on the windows. It was the perfect place to do my homework. So I would break into that garage repeatedly and I would sit there and do my homework. Um, I had no idea who this stuff belonged to or where he was or why he wasn't taking care of it. I did find out years later, but it was irrelevant at the time. Um, and so that shaped my intense interest in antique cars. So eighth grade, I was 13 years old at the time. I was not allowed to own a car until I was 18, except I found a 1936 Chevrolet one morning when I was delivering my newspapers. Someone had drug it up to Dana Chevrolet's car lot in Manson and dropped it off on the car lot. It was on flat tires. It was covered with dust. It hadn't been run in close to 20 years. It was gorgeous. I just had to have it. <laughs> so, I went to my father and I told him about it. And he said, no, you can't have a car until you're 18. And at this point I was 15, uh, but he went up and looked at it. And wouldn't you know, it was exactly like the car he drove when he was dating my mother. So he said, okay, I could buy it. It was $200. It didn't run. Um, I had to take out a bank loan and I had to pay $25 a week. I believe it was either a week or a month. But I bought it on I bought it on time payment. Um, since it didn't run, um, they had to push it home for me. So I got behind the wheel, and they pushed me with a tow truck. Nobody knew the car had no brakes until we were headed up the driveway to my house. So I was headed right toward the garage. I knew I was going to crash into the garage. So I had to pick the next best choice, and I turned and I aimed for a tree instead, and. I ran head first into the tree, but these wonderful old cars had spring steel bumpers. So it just bounced off. So no harm done. So that got me interested in antique cars. I've owned antique cars the rest of my life ever since. And I can very, very clearly trace that back to that episode in that garage. And in fact, um, one of the book series that I wrote called Orphan Babies, America's Early Economy Cars. I, I relate that story in that book. That just gives me all the more insight into the inspiration for Otto, of course, too. <laughs> um, and I, I'm curious now to ask, let's revisit what you brought up about, you know, Manson in a parallel dimension, maybe somewhere has become an automobile making town or did for a time. <laughs> Would you tell me more about what was supposed to happen there um, and, and why it didn't? So in the early 1980s, there was uh, an interesting phenomenon that occurred in the automotive world, something called a neoclassic. So neo meaning new, classic meaning obviously what we know classic to mean. So there are a number of 
of fledgling car companies that sprang up building neoclassic cars, new cars that looked like old cars. So a gentleman by the name of Shelberg created uh, a car on a mid-sized chassis with, uh, I believe it had a, a six-cylinder engine, but it looked very much like oh, sort of a, a mildly customized version of a, a early 30s or late 1920s automobile. So this little Shelberg, this little blue car, um, was going to be built in Manson. There were a number of people in Manson who, um, com who um, uh, contributed resources, financial resources, to get it started. There was a, a, a manufacturing company that did metalwork who uh, were, was going to spearhead the thing. Um, so there's a number of reasons why it didn't work out. Number one was there's no way Manson was ever going to be a ma an automobile manufacturing community. Um, it's not close to mass transportation. It's not close to a, a big trucking line. Um, it doesn't have a huge labor force there to support building um, automobiles on any real scale. Whether or not this was truly um, a legitimate effort or whether Mr. Shelberg um, was um, floating a stock scheme is a, a point of conversation. What we do know is Mr. Shelberg um, tried several other automotive ventures that went south very quickly, um, and he did not uh, end up with a stellar reputation. So we'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, but it was a huge disappointment for a lot of people. I remember the, the car was put on display in Manson, got a lot of attention. They even took it down to Des Moines to the Yonkers department store downtown and displayed it in the middle of the intersection. Uh, the Des Moines Register came to do a report on it, took a lot of photographs. I believe the car may still be in existence. Last I heard it was in a collector's hands in California. Um, but you know, it's one of those, it's it's one of those dreams that someone had and someone mistook the dreamer for a visionary and invested with him when maybe that wasn't the best idea. Got it. There were a number of other industries, though, as you pointed out here in Manson, and um, some that I even recall being here when we first moved back. The popcorn company um, comes to mind. Um, Sheila Bees. Sheila Bees, which I miss very much. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, what are some other notable, because you've, you've really um, defined for us sort of the entrepreneurial spirit of this town. I'm, I'm just curious, what other maybe entrepreneurial ventures uh, stand out to you as notable Manson uh, ventures? Yeah, so if you, if you do a, a, a patent search on Google and look for patents assigned to people from Manson, Iowa, you'd be surprised how many there are. Um, there's a gentleman in the late 19-teens that started a business in town called Porter Robe, and they manufactured portable wardrobes. So people wore long raccoon coats and, and uh, uh, dusters when they drive their open automobiles. So they had all these clothes that were very long. And at the time, houses didn't have closets. Nobody started building closets in houses until probably the 1930s, 1940s, maybe sometime in the 1920s. Um, so instead, they had standalone wardrobes, which were big wooden structures. Um, so if you're traveling a lot, you know you didn't have any place to store your clothes. So he developed a product called a called a portable wardrobe or a porter robe, and it was it consisted of metal tubing to form the structure, and then a zip zipper canvas that wrapped around that. And so he manufactured and sold porter robes in town. That business didn't last long. You know, as soon as people started building closets, that was the end of the porter robe. Um, and then in the 1940s, um, actually, my father's um, stepfather moved to Manson and started a business called the Manson Art Company. And they manufactured uh, plaster of Paris plaques 
that depicted religious uh, um, quotes. So they were three-dimensional so that the letters stood out from the plaque. You, most of them had um, different types of flowers or different kinds of animals depicted on them. And so they would, they would by hand, pour the plaster into the molds and then one at a time, pop them out. And several ladies around town would paint the details onto these plaques. So that business lasted until 1951. Um, it sprang up because during World War II, when our, our boys were being sent off to war, families were desperate to um, ensure that their boys were safe. And so religious items of every kind became very popular and were good sellers. After the war was over and everybody came home, the interest in this type of religious wear died away, and so did the business. So that was another interesting one. Then there was um, a company called Tony Cart that later became North American Golf Corporation. And they, for a good number of years, I'd have to go back and look, maybe 20 years, um, operated in town and they designed and manufactured golf bags. And um, so a lot of the golf bags that people would buy in sporting goods stores under other labels like McGregor or, you know, different well-known golf manufacturing companies, they were made in Manson. I know that because I worked there uh, for a time. I was a golf bag designer and I ran the glue station where we would cut out the patterns on the cutting board. And then we'd take them over to the glue station and I would glue the, the, the cardboard backing to the vinyl and then send them over to the stitching area. I think at some time there were probably 50 or 60 people, maybe more, who were employed there. Um, over a period of time, the business um, the business did less well. I remember at one point there were only seven people left on the payroll. I was one of them. So I was doing not just that, but I, was, I ended up being the person who would load and unload the trucks from the loading dock and it was just in my DNA to, to stick with something until it just couldn't work anymore. And so I stuck with North American golf until, uh, until the end. The building um, later became the John Deere implement dealership. And um, it actually burned down a couple of years ago. Um, and, and so a, a new building's been put up in its place. But that for a long time, that was a really thriving enterprise. Um, there was a company that built fiberglass bodies for utility trucks that was just down the road from them. Uh, they called it Northwest Bodies. And so if you see the telephone repair trucks that drive around various towns with the little boxes and, and compartments on the backs of the trucks, they built the bodies for those trucks. So thousands and thousands of bodies came out of Northwest Bodies. Um, Dalton Press is another interesting one. Uh, um, John Dalton started the Dalton Press uh, around the turn of the century, around 1900, and it actually started out as a newspaper. It was the Democrat, and the Manson Journal was the Republican newspaper. So there was there was a war of words often between the two. Um, and at some point, um, John Dalton decided to um, sell out of the newspaper business, so he sold off the, the Democrat um, I believe it just rolled into the Manson Journal and he had a sideline of printing calendars. So he he built the rest of his business up then printing calendars. And that business lasted until 2000. My father worked there from 1948 until 1997 and he retired from there. Um, but again, that's it's a question of purpose. Let's be honest, nobody needs a calendar anymore. It's on your telephone, it's it's on your computer, it's on your watch. Everybody knows what date it is anymore. They don't need wall calendars. Um, so it's just, it's a matter of always being aware of what your purpose needs to be. And if the needs change, your purpose needs to evolve with that as well. So we have a farming community with an entrepreneurial spirit in the middle of, well, 
this is going back <laughs> much further. What what came to be discovered in the 1980s also, I believe, is a very large impact crater. <laughs> um, <laughs> I believe actually one of our kind of claims to fame is is that we are on the U-Haul trailer. We are on the U-Haul. That's true. Um, we're on the map. <laughs> yeah. 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 That whole story started one June day several thousand years ago and well actually several million years ago i'm pretty sure it was june because we celebrate greater crater days in june so it had to have taken place in june but as a giant meteor came crashing down to earth and it hit three and a half miles northwest of manson um it 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 um drilled several thousand feet into the bedrock and spewed gravel um, up for miles around 20 miles. The, the impact crater spewed out, um, killed all the plant life, all the animal life in a, a, a circle that would have reached Chicago, um, Kansas City, everything within this area died. So we didn't realize that's what happened because when I was growing up, we knew there was something goofy about the, the geography, but we were told that it was an extinct volcano. They knew there was a crater there and they thought it was a volcano. So the water that we drank was naturally soft water because it filtered through all of this porous rock before it came up in our well. Um, so it wasn't until... I believe it was actually in the 1960s that somebody actually came up with the idea that this maybe this was a meteor instead. So there were some quiet drillings happening up by Calso Prairie is actually where it hit. So people were drilling around the farms there and, and taking samples out of the earth. Um, by the 1980s, it became clear that it truly was a meteor. And the person who was in charge of the project made the proclamation that it was the meteor that killed the dinosaurs. So we were just ecstatic. It was like, goodness, we practically lost our town in the tornado. And now we suddenly discover that we are the town built on the site that killed the dinosaurs. So suddenly there was talks about dinosaur theme parks and all kinds of things that we could do with that. And then it was a very short time later that they discovered an even larger meteor had struck in Yucatan Peninsula, south of, um, of Texas. And that, in fact, was the meteor that killed the dinosaurs, not ours. Ours was second best. And so our, our, our crater park that, that we have in Manson, where they dug a giant hole in the ground and put a boulder in the middle um, as an emulation of the crater, Suddenly, that was no big deal anymore. And last I saw it, it's all grown up with weeds. Um, so I, you know, I think we need to still hang on to that story. I think that was a very unique few months of our town's history that's worth preserving. So I'd love to see some folks go back to Greater Crater or go back to the Crater Park and do a little bit of renovation there and um, spruce that up a little bit. Yeah. And what's occurring to me now, <laughs> as we've had this conversation, is this place, which we've, we've, we've identified that there's a community and then there's a place and those things are not exactly the same. But this place has survived Earth upheaval of a meteor falling from space, massive <laughs> extinction and, and total um, demolition and regrowth over, you know, eons that <laughs> we can't even fathom. Um, and then, you know, since the founding of the town has survived fire, um, has survived uh, uh, wind, <laughs> tornado, massive uh, E4, right? Or F4, I mean, F4 tornado? Yeah. EF4. EF4, okay. Um, and so I'm going, okay, what's next? Water. And what's occurring to me right now is that we are actually in the middle of having to source uh, or, or make sure that we have a source for water going into the future. So I'm like, earth, fire, wind, water. <laughs> um, what more can one place uh, sustain? You know, it really takes a community to to respond to a challenge like that. 
what do you see as the thing that we have to be most proud of or to hold on to um, as identifying as being from Manson or the, the story of Manson itself? Like, what is our most shining moment? And on the flip side, what either has been or do you think may be currently the biggest challenge that we're facing? Um, I've given that some thought. Water, of course, is one of those huge challenges that the town is facing. When, when, when folks first came to Manson, they drilled a very shallow well and they hit water. And so ever since then, people thought, well, there's plenty of water here. That happened to be a fluke. 20 years later, they needed to drill a new well. And they had, whereas the first well was a couple hundred feet deep, the second well was thousand couple thousand feet deep and um, the rock under our town is unlike rock anywhere else and it's very difficult for a drill to go through because it's been superheated by this meteor that crashed to the ground so drilling companies don't like to drill here and it ruins their drill bits it's very expensive to drill here Um, but we've had several different wells over the years our, our wells are insufficient. Again, the aquifer that runs through the bedrock under our town is apparently unable to support us very much longer. Um, so they're desperately been drilling for more wells. They've, I don't know how much money has been spent. There's been multiple wells tried. I believe it's in the millions of dollars that have been spent. They're not finding water. Um, so there's been discussions with uh, the city of Fort Dodge to pipe water 18 miles to the west to to Manson. And that's an incredibly expensive undertaking as well. And the, the town's very small. And so that amount of money split between the residents um, matters. So hopefully they'll, they'll um, figure that out. Mm. You know, it's interesting. We've been challenged by natural events or occurrences so many people know Manson by its catastrophes. So some people in the scientific community know Manson because of the meteor strike. Um, other people know Manson because of the tornado that we survived. Um, in fact, if you go onto Manson's website, the official community website, um, the homepage is all about the tornado. Um, to me, I'm tired of hearing about Manson's catastrophes and the things we've overcome. I'd much rather talk about the wonderful aspects of Manson. So when I think of obstacles and when I think about the things we have to brag about, I think we tend to brag about our obstacles. Our our catastrophes are things that happen to us. And so let's put them aside and celebrate the fact that we survived them and there will be other obstacles to come, and we will survive those too. Um, so let's look at the entrepreneurial spirit. Let's look at the community. Let's look at the wonderful people in town. Let's look at the skills that are available in our town. And let's really build and promote based on those things and let the catastrophes that we've survived be an interesting side story that we can tell once they've come. Hmm. Oh, I love I love that reframing of that perspective. So what would you say if you sort of reframe the story of Manson and move away from those catastrophes to something else? Um, you know, what would you say? How would you frame that? Like, maybe what would you say has been the most joyful or proudest moment of, of Manson history thus far? You know, there's some interesting things that have taken place here. Um, in 1933, uh, Manson won the the uh, World Series of high school baseball, and it took place in Manson. So for ten or twelve years, Manson hosted the event. Um, so when you think of people like Ronald Reagan, who you know was a president and a, a big shot in Hollywood, he was a sports announcer who covered the the Manson baseball game. Um, he may not have covered that particular year, but he was, you know, he was here for some of those games. Um, but the first year that we hosted was in 1933, and Little Manson won the tournament. 
Um, so that's something to be celebrated. And if you talk to the people of Manson, there's still a few folks around who remember who the pitcher was. And um, in fact, he went on to become um, a professional baseball player. Uh, I could be wrong. I think it was Del Hall who was the pitcher. Uh, but so we've had we've had stories like that come from Manson. Um, Welker Cochran came from Manson. You may not know Welker Cochran. He was the world champion billiard player um, for many years. He was the world champion. And he got started because his father ran the hotel here in Manson. So there used to be a hotel on the corner of Main Street and what was it? 11th Avenue, uh, the Manson Hotel. So Welker Cochran's dad ran the place and he put in a little pool hall. And when uh, Welker was seven or eight years old, he would come down and he'd play um, billiards with his father and he would beat his father. Um, he, he was just tall enough that he could raise his arms up and, and hold the cue over the table to hit with. He could just peer over the top of the table and people would come in off the train and they would um, go to the hotel and they'd play billiards and here it would be this little kid who would challenge him to billiard matches and he would win. And so people came from miles and miles around and a talent scout came from Chicago and found Welker and actually took him to Chicago and trained him to be this professional billiard player. Um, so if you go to the, uh, the hall, Sports Hall of Fame in Des Moines, you'll find Welker Cochran in the Sports Hall of Fame. So there are stories about Manson, people from Manson who have made great accomplishments. And, and um, it's not just about them, though. It's about the community that raised them uh, because it takes the backing of a community to, to build that type of character and to build that type of skill. And that reminds me of your own story of how the community together sent, you know, invested in you and 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 said, we believe in you and we're going to foster your continued development. Um, so that really resonates with me. Um, so, um, Bob, we have just a few more questions here um, before we wrap up what I hope is only the first of our uh, continuing conversations. Um, and so I would just like to ask, first of all, um, what is uh, what what do you think might be next in your story and what do you hope or think might be next for the town of Manson? Well, next in my story is to get the story of Manson completed. So um, I've I've been working diligently on that. I've I've finished my solicitation among the townsfolk to contribute any relevant information that they they think is worthy of being compiled into this history book. Um, so I have a few stories of theirs that I'll weave into the story of that I've written myself. Um, and I'm taking, so my Facebook posts were random. Whatever happened that particular week in some year um, was the story of the week. I've taken those stories, I've put them into chronological order, and I'm in the process of editing them down into a palatable length. Um, I'm looking to have a book that's somewhere between 150 and 200 pages um, with roughly as many illustrations, um, old photographs. I've collected thousands of Manson photographs over the years. Um, so hopefully it'll be, it'll be a, a document that people will look forward to. Um, like I said earlier, I'm also a commercial illustrator by trade. So um, a couple of years ago, I illustrated an image of Manson Main Street as it would have appeared in 1946. So I I sell uh, prints of that particular image, and it's also going to be a, a portion of that image will also be featured as the cover of the book. Um, so that's the kind of work that I'm doing now. What do I see for myself? Beyond that, I have a number of other um, book ideas in my mind. I would love to write a book um, about um, a guy named Captain James V. Martin, who was the first person to fly an airplane um, from Harvard University. 
So he ran the Harvard Aeronautical Club. So this would have been, you know, just at the Wright brothers period. Um, actually, before the Wright brothers, he was flying gliders. Uh, Wright brothers, of course, were the first ones to fly in a uh, motorized airplane, but he was flying gliders. But he also developed a line of miniature automobiles that Sears Roebuck was going to sell out of their catalog. They weighed 600 pounds. They went 60 miles an hour. Um, and they were about eight feet long and just the cutest little things you ever saw. Uh, it didn't work out. Um, he tried 13 different times with different prototypes, had a little truck on a 60 inch wheelbase. Um, that seemed like a good idea at the time, but when he test drove it in front of the press, they put the brakes on real hard and it toppled over front forward. <laughs> so um, that was a, a, a terrible failure. What, what I really love to do is to explore the fringes of common sense. So, you know, people look at the, the, the smart car, for example, and say, well, that's that's the smallest car that you could possibly build and still be a reasonable car. Yeah, but I want to look at the ones that were even smaller, the ones that made no sense and figure out why did these people do this? Why did they think this was a viable idea? Really dig in there and tell those stories. So that's what I like to do. So I'll just continue doing that. I've, I've published a lot of work on the internet for theoldmotor.com and various other publications where they have an appetite for worthless information like that, but it's, it's what trips my trigger. And as long as it trips the trigger of, you know, a few other thousand people across the globe who are willing to read it on the internet, I'll be spending my time looking for that information. What do you think or hope is next for Manson? I don't know what's next for Manson. I have every confidence that something wonderful will come for Manson um, because wonderful things have happened in Manson. Uh, Fitzgerald's has an operation there where, where they do some wonderful metal work and, and they build, I guess, park benches and, and lots of creative things like that. So there's always somebody that comes along who has some creative idea and enough, um, enough, uh, I guess, finances and, and, um, confidence to combine them and, and get something started. Um, I, I know the main street is struggling. They're, they're having difficulties keeping brick and mortar businesses in operation. Uh, there's a few restaurants that people can go to and, and enjoy a meal. Um, but you know, there's only so much to go around. Um, so there's entrepreneurs that have popped up around town who are not operating brick and mortar, but who are operating web businesses instead. So doing commerce over the internet. And I think that's created some friction between the brick and mortar and, and the internet type businesses. Um, which of those businesses deserve support from the community? I think all of them do. Um, so I think we need to be willing to recognize that the world has changed and as along with those changes have to come some difficult decisions. And um, we have to be able to evolve. Like we said, there's not a lot of need for calendars anymore. And that's why the Dalton Press doesn't exist. And so we have to be in tune with what the needs of the population, the world population are and find opportunities to fulfill those needs in maybe creative ways that didn't work for the 20th century, but might work well for the 21st. I, I would be really curious to know more about um, how your family came to this place, since we're looking at the intersections of place and story and community and story. Would you share more about, you mentioned so many different ways that people came to reside in Manson as it grew up over time. How did your story uh, or how did your family come to be in Manson? Yeah, so that's an interesting story in and of itself. And um, I'm going to use a couple of terms. One is um, accidental inhabitant and one is intentional inhabitant. So accidental inhabitants in my mind are people who were born there 
They made no choice. They're just there because that's that's where they've always been. My parents, though, were intentional inhabitants. They were not born there. They went there for a reason. Um, my father and mother were both born during the Depression in Chicago. Uh, my father's father died when he was four years old, and his mother uh, did not have the financial means to support him. So at the time that his father died, um, their address was actually a mission in Chicago that was um, supported by one of the church groups to uh, to provide shelter and a reasonable life for homeless people. So my dad ended up being put into the Klingberg Children's Home in Chicago, which was also uh, financed by uh, the Swedish Baptist community. And so the children's home was, was a, a place that was set aside for up to 36 children who could live in the home um, through the age of 13. So my dad went, went in when he was four. He lived there until he was about 10. And then his mother remarried. And so he was able to go live with his stepfather for a period of time. My mother... Um, also became a ward of the children's home when she was three years old. Um, similar situation, her father, her father didn't die. He just, um, he just found it reasonable to move away. <laughs> and so he divorced um, my grandmother who um, found work as a cook and, and housekeeper for a wealthy family, but they did not want to have a child living in the house with her. So she uh, put mom in the children's home. And so my parents grew up in the same house together. They didn't really play together. Um, as my dad put it, he was afraid of catching girl cooties. So, <laughs> so, so they didn't really like each other that much. Um, and then at the outbreak of World War II, um, my, my dad realized that um, his, his older stepbrother had gone into the service to support the country's war effort, and dad, at age 13, felt that he needed to do the same. He couldn't join the service, of course, but perhaps he could work on a victory garden. So victory gardens were um, homegrown farming efforts on a miniature scale that, um, that the, the nation's citizens uh, put together to to raise their own food, not only to feed themselves, but to feed the soldiers overseas. So through some connections of his stepfather, um, he came to Manson where some of his stepfather's relatives lived because his stepfather graduated from Manson High School in 1918. So uh, he found my father an opportunity to work um, on, a, on the George Herman farm east of Manson. So at age 13, my dad was on his own. And so um, he lived in, in a second floor room in the George Herman farm, and he worked as a farmhand through uh, junior high and high school. My uh, mother, at, at the same time, um, she had an opportunity to leave the home and live with her mother and her stepsister after her stepsister got married. So she lived with them for a while. When my mother turned 18, so this would be 1950, um, 19, no, when my mother turned 17 in 1950, one of the matrons of the children's home wrote to my father out on the farm and said, you really ought to get to know Doris Ann. Um, she's studied piano. Um, she's, she's trained to be a concert pianist. She comes to the children's home. She teaches music to the, the children in the children's home. She's a good Christian girl. I think you two would really hit it off. So my dad finally agreed to write to my mom. Um, they found that they did have a lot in common. Um, they got to know each other better than they did when they were children at, at the home. And so um, over Christmas, my dad drove out to Chicago to meet my mom 
Um, it seemed to go well. Um, my mom turned 18 on March 1st the following year, and they got married on March 31st. They wanted absolutely nothing to do with the city. Um, both of them had terrible, terrible experiences in the city. Um, like I said, my dad had been housed in, in various um, missions and um, apartments uh, during his younger years. Um, he went to nine different schools before he was in eighth grade, and he just really um, appreciated the stability that he found when he moved to the farm in Manson. So when they got married, um, he moved mom with him to Manson. So they've been there ever since. So you would say that they are intentional inhabitants? Very much intentional. In fact, um, my father's 92 years old and my mom's 80, pushing 89 at this point. And we've had conversations with them about moving away from Manson to live closer to us so that we can provide care to them. They want absolutely nothing to do with it. Manson is their home. That's where they will stay. And, and I understand and I appreciate that. Mansonites through and through. They're yes. Just, yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, thank you for sharing how your family came to be intentional inhabitants. So, Bob, we've had a chance to speak quite a bit about the story of Manson, and I imagine an important part of any story uh, are the names of the characters. And in our case, uh, in covering the history and the story of Manson, we have a very notable character, the the, the town itself. Um, and I'm wondering if you know how this character came to have its name. How did the town of Manson come to be called Manson? You know, that's been a mystery um, for over 100 years. Um, the town's almost 150 years old. And when the town had its 50th anniversary, that question came up. And so they went to the oldest resident in town, the fellow who had been there the longest, a gentleman by the name of John Somerville, who had moved to the area before Manson was Manson. There was a stagecoach stop about three and a half miles east of town in a place called Yatesville. So Yatesville was started by a gentleman named Yates. Surprise, surprise. Joseph Yates started it, um, had a little stagecoach stop there, actually got a post office, several uh, buildings went up there. Um, and and uh, John Somerville was a resident of Yatesville. And so um, after the railroad came through, we talked a little bit earlier that you know, people started settling around where Manson is. And Somerville was one of the folks who picked up and moved from Yatesville to Manson. So they asked him, how did Manson get its name? He said he didn't really know, but he had heard that it was named after somebody named Manson who was associated with the Illinois Central Railroad when, when the railroad came through. So that's the only information that's ever been known about the town. And that gave me enough of um, a jump start for my research to track this person down. I, after spending quite a bit of time researching anyone by the name of Manson associated with the Illinois Central Railroad, soon discovered there was no Manson associated with the Illinois Central Railroad. Um, but I did find somebody named Manson who was sort of connected in a roundabout way. He wasn't connected with Illinois Central, but he was connected with the work that took place to get the railroad through. So I think probably the best way to, to answer your question is to actually read a passage from my manuscript that explains how this all happened. So, the name of this particular chapter is Manson stuck somewhere between purgatory and hell. So it goes like this. In October, 1967, Fort Dodge attorney John Duncombe purchased land to run a railroad from Iowa Falls to Sioux City. He enlisted the firm of Douglas, Brown and Company to build bridges and grade the railroad bed across the untamed sloughs and grasslands. Its two principals, Maurice Douglas and Charles Brown, hailed from Cedar Rapids and Dubuque, respectively. A third unnamed partner in the firm was Robert Manson of Waterloo. Manson took charge of enlisting 100 men and 50 teams of horses 
and they completed grading the land to a point 15 miles east of Fort Dodge by early winter of 1869. Now, one morning, Manson, Douglas, Brown, and their crews passed north of a swampy and unforgiving patch known to the stagecoach drivers as Hell Slough. After traversing several miles on higher ground, they encountered the larger and even more formidable Purgatory Slough, and they found themselves and their horses hopelessly mired in the bog. Despite their best efforts throughout the afternoon, the men were unable to extricate the horses and their heavy wagons from the goo. Toward evening, Maurice Brown finally lowered himself into the ice cold waters and slowly trudged through the sticky mud. And after much effort, he reached the safety of the railroad bed. Then he called out to Manson and Douglas and encouraged them to join him. But the two men chose to remain high and dry on a mired wagon. Now the three partners were not only intrepid pioneers and canny businessmen, they also stood firm in their spiritual beliefs. Manson and Douglas were strict Presbyterians from Scotland, while the brawny Brown was a staunch Irish Catholic. The trio often engaged in spirited debate about their doctrinal differences. As night fell, a conversation between Brown and Douglas resumed a prior debate about the existence of a real purgatory. That's the stopping place that Catholics say exists between heaven and hell. Calling across the swamp to Douglas, Brown wanted to know whether he believed in purgatory. Douglas defiantly replied that he did not. Manson, who was perched on top of the large steam-powered pile driver, encouraged Douglas to stick to his beliefs, shouting in his thick Scottish drawl, Don ye give it up, you'll beat them yet. From the safety of the railroad bed, though, Brown shouted back with a toothy grin, then ye can stay there till you do believe. And he turned to walk away. Sensing temporary abandonment and possible doom in this frozen wasteland, Manson and Douglas both cried out at the tops of their voices, yes, yes, we do in fact believe in purgatory. After all, they were stuck in purgatory at that very moment and they vowed to never say another word against the happy land of Canaan again, or at least until they got out of the slough. So having won the argument, Brown ordered his men to assist the stranded travelers to the railroad bid. Later, as the railroad neared completion to Sioux City in 1870, John Duncombe, together with Illinois Central President John Blair and several other executives and their wives, rode one of the first trains to run the entire distance between Fort Dodge and Sioux City, stopping every seven to 10 miles to name a town location after friends, family, and business acquaintances. Most of the names honored men whose politics matched his own or who had been instrumental in the completion of the railroad. When the train paused at the site a few miles northwest of Yatesville, Blair declared the upstart, upstart village would not be Yatesville, as the locals expected, but it would be Manson. The name would forever commemorate Robert Manson and the comedy that took place in that godforsaken swamp. So that's how our town came to be. Wow. So how did you discover this story of what they were actually conversing about? I... You know, it took months and months of research, but I came across an old newspaper article that was published. I can't remember the date. It was probably, I, you know, I think it was, I think it was 1876. I think it was published about the time of the American centennial. And so the pioneers were all talking about things that they had encountered and, and done. Uh, and I think that's when it was published, but um, I've, I found not only how Manson got its name, but how every other town between Fort Dodge and Sioux City was named as well. One of the interesting ones was Lamar's. Uh, as I said earlier, all of the rest of the towns were named after people. Lamar's was not. Um, 
but it got to the place that would be Lamar's. They couldn't think what to name it. So they told the wives to come up with a name. So each of the wives pulled one initial out of their names and, and mixed them up together until they came up with the name of a town that sounded um, eloquent. And they came up with Lamar's. Something struck me as I was listening. Where did you find these resources, these newspaper articles? Are these online? Are they Library of Congress? I, I don't want you to give up your secrets if, if you have secrets. But but for someone who might be wishing to do this same kind of research for their own town, um, some maybe someone in Lamar's, um, how would they get started? You know, there's more and more of the small towns who are realizing that their newspapers are a treasure trove of information that needs to be saved. And they've, um, they've come together and um, sent their newspapers off to various scanning companies who have scanned the contents of the newspapers. And you can actually search online. You have to subscribe to these newspaper services. Uh, but once you subscribe, then you are able to do a Google type search on their sites and find um, ancient content in all of these old newspapers. It's not lost on me that our town was founded due to the expansion of the railroads. And you had mentioned that it, this had been uh, the space where indigenous peoples lived until a couple of years before the railroads came through. And I'm wondering if you came across or you have any thoughts about that complexity of that history. Yeah, that brings up a whole myriad of, of issues about the fairness of how the, the indigenous peoples were treated and, um, and even how, how much time passed between the Indians roamed that land before the white settlers uh, began to settle in. There was really only about a 15, peri 15 year period between the time when um, it was Indian territory um, filled with uh, indigenous peoples until most of them had been moved out. Uh, a lot of them ended up in Oklahoma and some of the southern states. Um, they literally had to walk there and uh, there was nothing there for them when they got there. Uh, most, most of the reservations were set up on lands that the white settlers had no use for. Um, so there was, there was a, one of the last great massacres that took place in Iowa was at, at Spirit Lake. And that was just a few years before Manson was founded. Um, so there was great concern among many of the pioneers who, who came out to this area that they would have Indian encounters. Um, there were a few, not many. Um, there are, there is a painting um, of a, a war that took place at Twin Lakes between two uh, warring tribes shortly before Manson um, was founded. And I even ran across stories after Manson was um, began to be built up where um, American Indians would end up camped outside of town or camped in town behind the lumber yard. Um, they were just sort of wandering. They had lost their homes. They had no place to be. So we talked earlier about community and place and what's the difference between those things. And their place and their community had been the, the swampy grasslands of north central Iowa, but suddenly that was somebody else's place, somebody else's community, and and they they felt lost and alone. Um, so was it the right thing to do? You know, it's easy for us today to recognize, no, it was not the right thing to do. They were not well treated, um, but it was a different world and people thought differently and um, you can't undo what's been done, but you can certainly um, do what we can to ensure that everyone is treated equitably as we move forward. A very complex challenge that really as we reach the 150th anniversary of the founding of the town, we can approach in, in a different way than than before and with different context. Hopefully, I... Um, I appreciate your your response to that question, and I'm 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 just really present to how one man's or one people's 
entrepreneurial expedition is on other people's incursion and displacement and genocide and and of course there was death on on both sides um and and it's also not lost on me how you know many of the settlers who who came to this space later and and took up that that opportunity that was created by the expansion of the railroads came because they too were displaced uh, in one way or another from where they originally came from. Do you have any perspective on, on that specifically, how displaced peoples displace other peoples and anything in your research about, about that? You know, nothing specific about that in my research, but I will say it's, it's a, it's a practice that continues today. We, we have different names for it. Um, now we have something called urban renewal. And so, you know, the, the city fathers in various communities in their wisdom believe it's time for, um, underprivileged neighborhoods to be revitalized. So they come in, they displace the people who call that home. They raise the buildings, they put up new structures, in many cases, structures that the people who were there before can't afford. And so it, it revitalizes the city, it brings in more modern buildings, but yet here's a group of people now who have lost their place and lost their community and they feel alone and abandoned. Um, so it, it's a continual practice something called eminent domain where governments can can decide for the good of the people they can displace others um and so you know that's progress they say well it's one man's progress that's it's another man's displacement and actually i believe that's happening in iowa right now with a pipeline there are farmers who are facing or have sued i, I don't remember exactly where but there's a pipeline that's proposed and uh, eminent domain has become an issue in, in that uh, area as well because the government's saying oh yep we're going to put a pipeline here well that's farmland that you know has sometimes been in, in families for, for generations that then if we look even back further in the story was once the uh, well the living space of, of indigenous peoples that we spoke about earlier Thank you, Bob, for being willing to go a little bit deeper into the history, behind the history, behind the history um, with me today. One final question. I know you're writing an actual book right now about Manson, but if you were to write a book about Manson and title it in one word, so this sort of defining word, what would you title that book? I'd rather use two words. It would either be progressive conservatism or what's the opposite of that conservative progress progressivism <laughs> i don't know because the community itself is is conservative but the individuals are progressive you have to be progressive in order to make it in the 21st century the problem is people who are conservative have um, little patience for those who are progressive and the people who are progressive have little patience for those who are conservative. But the reality is you need both of them. They have to exist in harmony. And I think you can make it work. Um, it depends on how you frame it. So for some people, you have to describe their future as progressively conservative and for the others, you have to describe it as conservatively progressive, but in fact, it's exactly the same thing. Thank you so much for that. Bob, where can we find you on the interwebs, your artwork, your book ultimately when it is published? Let us know where we can find you and your work. Yeah, so if you want to see some of the artwork that I do, um, there's a site called pixels.com, P-I-X-E-L-S. So when you go um, search pixels.com, look for Cunningham Studio. Um, I think it's specifically B Cunningham Studio, B for Bob. Um, and there you'll find um, artwork that I've done 
of automotive related topics. I've got a, a series of artworks um, called the Forgotten Iowa series. So it depicts automotive scenes from important places around uh, the state. The Manson image is a part of that. Um, in terms of my books, I generally print just enough books to sell out quickly. Um, I, I, I don't like to sit on inventory. So at this point, all of my books are sold out. Uh, they're out of print, but if you were to look me up under a Google search and, and look for book titles like Orphan Babies, America's Forgotten Economy Cars, or Too Little Too Soon, or Playboy, America's Pioneer Hardtop Convertible, um, there's a number of books that you'll find out there that um, are under my, my author's name. Wonderful. And all of that will be linked in, in the podcast links for people to find very easily. So I will get those I links. I appreciate that. Yeah, you bet. Thank you so much, Bob. Is there anything else as we close out today that you uh, want to mention or that's still on your mind as we discuss the story of Manson, your story, how those stories are interlinked, um, and the story of, of this hometown? Is there anything else that you'd like to share? I just appreciate the fact that you think Manson is significant in some way. I do too. And, you know, we're kindred spirits in that regard. And I just hope that um, your podcast will help others who are maybe on the fence. I think there's probably people who live in town who maybe aren't as convinced as you and I, and maybe this will help convince them that they truly do have a golden nugget in the town of Manson. And so, so I wish you great success uh, with your podcast. Thank you so much. And thank you for being the first guest on the podcast today. And, you know, on that, maybe you have to go away sometimes or have to have been an intentional inhabitant like your parents were in the first place to see that golden nugget. Yeah, there's an old saying, you can never go home. I disagree. Um, home may look different than it was when, when you lived there. But even if you can't go back to the physical place, you can go back to the memory and it's very much still home. Thank you, Bob. Thank you so much for being here today. You're welcome. I am the colors and you are the words That describe them to unknowing children I am the tune that can never be heard By anyone other than you So don't let my songs become Join us as the story continues next time on Storyborn. <laughs>